Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, brief break from your Barky Lungy series while I dive into the Patreon questions and record the epic Patreon question episode, which will be part five, and you'll have that one next week. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And... If we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. All right. Today, uh, Leslie Ide and I are going to talk about the new fix and continue thing that is allowed in both AKC and USDAA Agility Now, which is a change. You didn't used to be able to fix, quote-unquote, fix anything other than weave poles or a refusal or a wrong course. Um, So it used to be that if you, let's say your dog missed a contact and you put them back on the contact, that's considered training in the ring and you have to leave the course. So now um, both venues are allowing fix and continue. We're not going to go super in depth on the rules. Our friends over at Bad Dog Agility um, did that already with a rep, an AKC rep, Kitty Bradley. um, And we will link to that podcast in the notes for this episode because we don't know the rules verbatim we've just been using fix and continue so and leslie's been using it in akc and i've been using it in usdaa and so we're going to talk about how how we're using it and how we think it might be best used so thanks for having this chat with me leslie say hi to everyone hi guys i'm happy to be here so let's see Essentially, you know, the way that you and I have been talking about doing this is in kind of two separate ways. So you can either utilize Fix and Continue because you have a training project, a training hole or something like that, that you're trying to kind of bridge the gap between training and trials. So that's kind of one way to utilize it. And the other way to utilize it is just because shit happens on course And then you might want to go, oh, that was my fault. I'm going to fix it. And it's more of a handling fix than a training fix. That's how I've primarily been using it. Um, If I set the wrong line for my dog and he goes around a jump, um, I have circled back and taken a few jumps or a tunnel leading up to that line and then done the line again or done the move again. But Leslie, you've actually primarily been utilizing it with your kind of contact repair. 
that you've been working really hard on with Ghost. So do you want to talk a little bit about what you've done with Ghost recently? Sure. So, um... And maybe tell them who Ghost is. As if they don't hear her whining in the background of most podcasts that I record. Um, okay. <laughs> so, Ghost is my tailed Australian Shepherd. Um, she just turned seven and... Single tear. Um, <laughs> and um, she is... I mean, I never have a primary competition dog, so I can't call her that because I never compete with only one dog. But um, I have some big aspirations. She's basically the dog you've got the biggest goals with right now, though, right? Yes. I have some big aspirations for her. Um, So we went to EO tryouts in the fall of 2019 and... Um, basically after that, I decided, you know, I wanted to, um, try some other things like potentially world team tryouts and, um, just kind of realizing that if I could get her contacts in competition more, um, proficient and more reliable, it would add a lot of speed um, and make her more competitive. And part of the issue was just, I think, uh, misunderstanding because I had let things slide so much in competition, um, that her contacts were just getting worse and worse and creepier and creepier and slower and slower. And I just finally hit the point where I'm like, okay, this, this doesn't work for me anymore. We need to fix this problem. Yeah, and I think that that's actually a really common scenario. You get the dog out, everything's great. Maybe they get into masters or they get a little more competitive. You get a little impatient. And then the contact criteria can definitely slide. Um, And I think in the case of Ghost, she would slow down on the contacts like due to that confusion, due to that wait. You want one thing in training and another thing is acceptable in trials. So I'm going to slow down because I'm a little confused. Um, So what specifically have you done in a trial if Ghost, let's do, I think you're doing relatively the same thing if she's creepy or slow versus actually bailing off. Um, But kind of what are, what are you doing? How are you, how are you able to utilize this new rule to help her? So basically the fact like with contacts in and of themselves, you can repeat them um, to try and get the obstacle performance you want. Whereas, you know, before you couldn't do anything with the contacts, really the only thing, your only option was to leave if they, if the dog did not meet your criteria. Well, now um, you have multiple options. You can go back, just do the contact itself. Um, You can actually do two, one or two obstacles leading up to it um, to help the dog understand even in flow, they still have to meet criteria. Um, And then you can go on. Um, And so you can only do it with one contact um, in the run. So that's important to remember. You can't fix and go all three contacts. So 
you know, if it's your first contact and you need to um, fix that one, then you need to have a plan for the other two if they're also problems um, because now you can't fix those. Right. So that is one particular thing in the rules that um, is a little bit limiting is that you are only allowed to do this one time per run. So that's important to think about before you go into the run is you want to be thinking, okay, if I'm going to have to train, so if I'm not getting a clean round and I'm going to have to use this run for training essentially and do a fix and continue, where am I, where is it most advantageous to me to do that training. So if the dog walk is your primary concern and your primary problem, you're gonna save your fix and continue for the dog walk. And then if the dog happens to do their dog walk perfectly, great, finish your run. It's not like there's a rule that says you have to do a fix and continue. Um, And then I think otherwise, like if you don't have a training focus, it might be wise to just kind of, I don't know, fix and continue the first thing that goes wrong. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think, like, one of the things that I've, what I like about this rule or new thing is that I can really plan ahead of time what I want to do. And sometimes, you know, you have to be strategic about it. So, um, for example, with Ghost, because I really want to use it to work her contacts, that means I don't necessarily want to use my fix on go if she breaks the start line, you know, because I don't think that's a major problem in competition. Um, Again, if she misses a weave pull entry, you know, I'm just going to go back and fix the weave pulls rather than do like the jump leading up to the weave pulls because I don't want to use my fix and go on the weave pulls. You know, sometimes these things are just weird things that happen in a run and I I don't necessarily recognize them as consistent problems. And so I really want to be able to use them where they will make the most benefit. So again, even if, um, say, uh, ghost creeps into the yellow um, and technically could still qualify in the run, I have been um, taking her around and doing it again if she doesn't get down into the two-on-two-off position that I want. So, again, it's, it's you know, being strategic and knowing before you get into the ring what you're going to do and, and how you're going to use your fix and go rather than just trying to do it in the spur of the moment. Yeah, and I think that kind of brings to mind um, something that I saw. I competed in USDAA this last weekend, and Leslie competed in AKC, and something that I saw this last weekend was fixing of contacts only if an NQ occurred. So the dog was supposed to do a a two-on-two-off. The dog failed to do a two-on-two-off and also missed the contact. And so the handler circled around and did the contact again, and then the dog nailed the two-on-two-off, and that was great. But then in that team's next run that I saw, the dog bailed from the top of the yellow on the A-frame, but had a foot in, and so didn't get called. And the handler kept going until the next contact got called, and then the handler repeated that contact. And that's just not a smart training plan. It's not smart to be inconsistent like that because then you're basically just kind of being a jerk. You're basically just saying, um, 
you know, I'm only going to use this to, quote unquote, show my dog you was wrong, basically. Like, if your goal is to show the dog they're wrong, then you aren't training. That's not how training works. Helping the dog to be right is how training works. Yeah. And one of the things that potentially, like I said, makes my situation unique and how I've been able to take advantage of it is that in my situation of wanting that driving into a two-on-two-off on the dog walk, I can sometimes, if she, if she stops short, like close to the end, but just short, it can re-cue and mm-hmm. she does it and I can go on. So And then that's not a fix and continue, correct. so you're fine. But I, my criteria, like I have different scenarios in my head for basically what gets fixed at this point and what gets a re-cue. Um, and then Which is also, so smart to have that. And then also what happens if she fails a second time, which for me, it's, it's leaving. Um, now one of the other things I did in the beginning when I was introducing this, just to really try and kind of help her understand that when she did it right, not just going on to the next obstacle, but actually having a bit of a party for doing it correctly, because you've, you've already eat, you've already, um, you know, lost your chance at anything by engaging in the fix and go. Mm-hmm. So why not celebrate when they do it correctly? Yeah. And especially in a two-on-two-off contact, it's really easy to do that. Not so easy when you're fixing, like, a wrong course or something, like, and you go back to try and do that um, sequence and flow again. It doesn't maybe necessarily make sense to stop after they do it correctly and celebrate. Well, but I still would do, like, a little bit of, like, verbal, like, yes, good job, and while you're continuing moving on versus like a two on two off I would I was releasing and then literally having like a two second dance party before going on because Aussies appreciate dance parties. yes yeah and you know oftentimes um you know especially in AKC they want to be really careful about you using too much time to do your fix and go Um, and so one of the things I often have no idea where I am time-wise when I do it. So if I do the fix and go and suddenly the judge is like, your time is up, you need to leave. I want to be able to at least have that, that dance party celebrating that they did it right before I have to leave the ring because I've run out of time. And just FYI, it's a pretty short amount of time. It's 60 seconds in AKC and or in standard AKC and 45 seconds in jumpers. And essentially that clock begins the second you engage the fix and no, go. No, it begins the second you start the clock. So well, if I don't you do when you're fixing So if you do your fix and go at 55 seconds, yeah. And then you say your fix takes 3 seconds. You don't get to finish the course. No, you have 2 more seconds. They will buzz you at 60 seconds. Your clock So your, it's different from standard course time. Correct. Because the worry was that fix and goes were going to make the day so long. Which is a real They have set these time limits. So, again, not too much of a worry with my dogs. Um, but, you know, if the dog walk is the second to last obstacle, I could easily be at, like, 35 
you know, somewhere around there, 35 seconds when I hit the dog walk and then walking her around to do it again, I could Mm, be getting close to that 60 second limit, depending on how long it takes me to get her back to the end of the dog walk and set up. Um, So there is some, you know, again, being prepared for what are you going to do when they're not successful? What are you going to do when they are successful? Because realizing, you know, just going on in the course may not be an option. um, And that may not be as highly reinforcing to your dog. Um, I think for Stig, it definitely is. Um, But Ghost enjoys a dance party and then going on. And I want to circle back to something that you said um, with like praising if you fix a wrong course or something like that. Um, I actually have an episode planned to talk about praise mid run and like when it might be helpful and when it's not. But I'm going to say that if you're fixing a wrong course, you aren't fixing anything the dog did anyway. You're fixing your handling in that scenario to help the dog do the correct thing. And the benefit there is to help you get your handling right in real time rather than any dog training that's involved. So I don't even think it's necessary to praise in that scenario because the dog shouldn't know that anything is out of the ordinary because you should have circled around, just tried again, just done it again. Um, And then if the same thing goes wrong twice, I'm going to say you've either got a training hole or your handling did not get fixed the second time. And, you know, then you just go on and don't worry about it. Um... I think that it's important for us, because I've definitely seen this happening a little bit, it's important for us, again, to not be engaging fix and continue to try to punish or correct, basically. Because I'm definitely seeing that. Because you're even allowed to, like, stop the dog, reset a bar that fell, and then repeat that sequence again. Which I don't care if you want to do that, if you're going to be not a jerk about it. But I've definitely seen little bit riding the line of trying to actually punish the bar falling when again I'm just going to say the bar probably fell because of your handling so if you want to stop and reset the bar and try that sequence again to try to keep that bar up I say have at it but if you're going to scream lie down and maybe you know other not nice things to say I'm not going to repeat what I heard a handler saying this weekend because i Don't think it's appropriate to be repeating, but like I heard really not nice things. And then, you know, the dog's like cowering in the dirt as this person resets a bar and then they circle through. And I'm just, you guys, this is, I honestly don't think my listeners are going to be engaging in that kind of behavior. But maybe if you see other people engaging in that kind of behavior, you can say like, hey, what's your goal with that? Like if it's a person that you, you know, talk to on a regular basis, (laughs) Like, hey, what's your goal with that? And do you, you know, is your is your process here trying to correct knocking the bar or trying to improve the communication between you and the dog? Because if it is trying to correct knocking the bar, then I guess that's what you're doing. But if you want to be improving communication, then you can probably leave that stuff out. Yeah. And I've, I've actually seen that scenario a bit in the AKC trials lately. And, and I would say I... I've actually had the opposite experience that I think most people are doing it appropriately. Um, you know, usually the dog does need to put be put in some kind of stay 
while the handler is mm-hmm. fixing the bar and then they get reset. Usually, again, the one situations I've seen people being smart by taking them back one to two jumps or obstacles to that knocked bar so they can set up the scenario again and repeat it. Um, and it's been very um, well handled. Like, I don't see really any um, emotion in either the dog or the handler um when it happens like oh that was bad or punishing um so i've been really happy that that's that's the scenario that i've experienced i would also say you know from my observation i'm gonna guess that that's similar to how the dog is being trained as well so it's yes, not yeah. unique in this scenario that, you know, if they drop a bar, they suddenly have to stop and it gets reset and then they go back. Um, again, I think what I see as the big plus to this, being able to do this, is is more for the dog to understand the connection of um, and people to be more consistent of what happens in training is what happens in the trial. Absolutely. And so for the ones I'm seeing, if that's what they do every time um, in training, the dog doesn't seem to mind it. Same with why I think like Ghost has had no issue with redoing the contacts because she's actually used to that. Mm -hmm. Because if we're in a training class and she misses her contact, we go back and sequence it again. And if she does it correctly, she gets reinforced and we go on. And so I think that's actually helped her make the connection that, oh, this is the same. This, we are doing it the same now. It's not a different scenario where the almighty cue is so important that I can just touch the yellow, creep into it, and mom will release me and we can go on because she wants the clean run. Yeah, and I think that's probably, you know, potentially the difference in what you were seeing versus what I was seeing is I only saw people be jerks in, like, Grand Prix, right? So when the cue means more to you, when there's more on the line, we're more likely to. There's probably a whole other podcast about that in here somewhere, but... I mean, here's what I'm going to say is that um, cues are are very much on the line for me right now. They're very important. Mm -hmm. I need them. I have a short amount of time to get them. I still, and you know, it's hard for me, but I still have given up quite a few standard runs in order to train this um, because I feel like in the long run, it will give me more reliability rather than just, oh, sometimes we're lucky and we get a standard cue or sometimes... Um, we get the standard cue, but it's a really slow time because we had creeping contacts, but we hit the yellow. I would rather have fast contacts and a higher cue rate down the road for my standard runs. And that's my ultimate goal. And I think, you know, I don't have probably enough data yet, but if I just look at the trends over you know, the last two months that this is, I've been doing it and this has been going on. Um, Your standard key rate has, has gone up it. for sure. Yeah. It for sure has. So. Um, so I think that's really important. So I think kind of to conclude, have a plan. 
Know what it is that you want to train out there if you are going to go train. Know exactly how you're going to do it. How you're going to reinforce the correct response, whether that's a dance party or just going on and running the course. Like you mentioned, the Border Collies in our house want to go on and the Aussie does appreciate the dance party. Well, and we had even discussed potentially um, with Aussie having a little dance party and then running out to a jackpot of food. Yes. Because food is the ultimate to her. So um, that was a potential, again, if 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 I wasn't getting the results that I wanted from what I was doing with like the dance party and then going on that progressing to maybe dance party run out of the ring as fast as possible. And she knows where all the cookie stashes are where we trial. And so it would basically be like a beeline to a cookie stash and she could just gorge herself with food and steal a bunch of other people's food. Um, And that might be the ultimate reinforcement for her. Yeah. So have your plan as to how you're going to reinforce. You have given up your run. Like, you have relinquished any hope of queuing at that point, which means that having your dance party or leaving for cookies, viable options. There's no reason, actually, for you to finish the course at that point, especially if there's a potential for one of your other two contacts to go wrong, I would say. So if there's a potential for one of your other two contacts to go wrong, it is smartest for you to leave to your jackpot. Because what if you fix the one contact and it's beautiful and then the next one is terrible? I mean, it's that and kind then of, you're only especially recor- if like you, you have three separate behaviors, mm-hmm. running A-frame, four on teeter, and two on, two off dog walk. If you have three separate behaviors, that's three separate, you know, training projects and three separate behaviors that could fail potentially. And it's important to know what your plan is, and that includes the rest of the run after the fix and go, is what are you going to do after that? Exactly. And sometimes, you know, if the second or third contact is not what you want, your only recourse at that point is to leave. Right. Um, You can't, or go on. Like, you can't, you can't do anything to get the right performance. Yeah. So it may be best for you to not ask for that piece of equipment and to just leave instead. So I hope you guys found this helpful. Um, Leslie and I both have stuff coming up as far as webinars, classes, workshops, etc. But I'm not actually sure when this episode will be airing. So I'm just going to have Leslie tell you where you can find all of her stuff so that you can check her out um, and see what's coming up on on the Leslie front. So your best bet to know what is coming up is to um, like or follow the Total Canine on Facebook. Canine is spelled out, C-A-N-I-N-E. Um, that is where I will be posting all the announcements of when my upcoming classes and webinars are. I can tell you for sure of as of this date, my Agility Gym class is going to go live on April 1st. Um, that is through camthorcanine.com. It is a Welsh website, so don't try and put any vowels in there. It's <laughs> C-A-M-D-D-W-R 
canine spelled out c-a-n-i-n-e dot com and the class is called agility gym it is going to be running um as self-study so there aren't any working spots but there's unlimited spots for you to um buy the material and work through it on your own it's basically different workouts for different aspects of agility each week, and there are multiple levels of workouts each week. Um, The other two things coming up that I don't have official dates on yet are my Cavaletti's for Fitness um, online class through Fenzie Dog Sports Academy, Um, and then I am going to be doing my own webinar on my own platform. on tuck sits versus rock back sits. So the battle of the sits. Um, And most likely that's looking like it will be early April, potentially April 3rd. And there are only 100 spots available to purchase for that webinar. Definitely want to get in on that. Um, And then you guys know me, thecognitivecanine.com. So thank you, Leslie, for having this conversation with me about fix and continue. Thank you. Onward, we'll just... Keep hopefully queuing and not needing to fix and continue, but in the case that we don't queue, fixing and continuing. All right, some Patreon questions for you guys. This one comes from Heather. She says, would you please discuss your strategies for dealing with an off-leash dog approaching you when you are walking your dog on leash? Yeah, Heather, this is kind of the thing I used to freak out about, and my life is better now that I don't freak out about it, but um, if my dogs are on leash and that dog is off leash and I realize that that dog is not going to get recalled which is kind of you know that's why we have to have these conversations is because Joe Public cannot recall their dog and I don't expect them to anymore which has made my life better so a couple of different options here if it is safe to do so I'm probably going to unclip my dog's leashes because right away that's going to help them feel Um, Like they have more security in the situation. But if my dogs are on leash anyway, it probably isn't an off-leash safe place. We're probably on a street, in a parking lot, that kind of thing. Um, In which case, I loosen up my leashes. So I just make sure I'm holding on to only the very end. I tell my dogs that it's a friend. And I put my hand on my spray shield. Spray shield is citronella in a can. I know you can't get it in all countries. Um... You could certainly use something else um, if you couldn't get it, like maybe, I don't know, vinegar and water um, in a spray bottle, something like that. Spray Shield is really fantastic because it shoots a nice distance, so I don't need to stick my hand in a dog altercation if I don't have to. Um, I have not used Spray Shield in this situation since I had my dog Kelso. My dog Kelso died when he was 14, just had his 19th birthday, um, been gone a while is kind of my point. And I, so I haven't actually had to use the spray in that long, but I put my hand on it just in case an altercation breaks out and then I can break it up really quickly and easily. If I had a tiny dog, I would probably pick them up. 
Next one comes from Kim. She says, can you offer some hints for helping older dogs deal with a puppy? I have an amazing nine-month-old Border Collie, and he just never relaxes when he's out with the other dogs. He will relax in his crate and has great crating skills, but if he's out, he's always in their faces when loose in the house. He gets daily decompression walks as we live on a small farm, and he's out helping me twice a day. So the first thing, Kim, is you say he gets daily decompression walks as we live on a small farm and he's out helping me twice a day. So that sounds like he's not actually getting decompression walks. That sounds like he has some nice free access to open space, which is different from going off property to a different location to explore nature. So I want to push on that a little bit and make sure that you are actually taking him out on walks and not just letting him kind of wander on his own because we need that nice mental stimulation and physical stimulation. His needs basically need to be met so that he's not trying to meet his needs by pestering your adult dogs. Nine month olds are kind of teenagers. They have more needs than puppies and adults. They need a lot of enrichment and a lot of decompression type exercise and a lot of um, brain work. So training would be really good. And then making sure that all those needs are met, if we've still got the problem, I would just protect my older dogs from the puppy. I would have barriers up, um, or I would have the puppy drag a leash so that I could stop the puppy without having to tell the puppy to do anything if he was pestering the other dogs. So good luck with that. And I appreciate your question very much. This one comes from Kirsty. She says, can you use the tossing of treats in place of a station in an agility class while you're listening to feedback from the instructor? Or would you consider this Pez dispensing? What other strategies would you use of if a station was not a viable option due to class format? Um, if you need to occupy your dog for a brief moment while your instructor speaks to you, you can station them like you mentioned, but if that's not possible, a downstay, or then you do need to just feed them. When you are just feeding them, you pretty much are Pez dispensing. We want, we do want to be careful of that just because we always want to be careful of the behaviors that we are throwing food at, but also not a huge deal if you know your instructor comes over, chats with you for a second while you feed the dog, and then you go back to work. The really important good thing that I see here, Kirstie, is that you're thinking hard about um, occupying the dog in those times. It's not fair to just leave the dog to their own devices during that moment. And that's when you're going to get barking at you, spinning, you know, that kind of behavior or checking out and sniffing, neither of which we like. A station is my preference. In lieu of a station, I can feed the dog or do a downstay. Okay, so final question here is going to be coming from Amanda. She says, I'm planning on getting a new puppy in the near future. Yay me, but I have a concern about my four-year-old border collie who has generalized anxiety as diagnosed by a veterinary behaviorist, teaching the puppy some of her anxious behavior. For the most part, my four-year-old is now pretty relaxed in the house, but periodically she still startles at noises and sudden movements and various other unexpected events. She's also a big fan of shouting at other dogs approaching her, especially around our property whilst I'm working on it. And it's probably always going to be a bit of an issue. How likely is a puppy going to learn the less desirable traits of an older dog? 
Um, and yes, I'm planning on getting a puppy culture type raised puppy. So Amanda, you have a few different questions in here and I'm gonna address first the kind of noise related or startle responses that your adult dog has. In those instances, I would just be making sure that you tell the puppy how great the noise was. So if she startles at a noise, you are gonna run at the noise if you can, or you're gonna throw a treat party, you're gonna do something that is counter to what your adult dog is doing. And no, raising the puppy um, really closely with the adult dog is not a good idea because puppies are extremely impressionable. That was one of your other questions, is how likely is this? It's, it's very, very likely. Um, and I have news for you, if you get a Border Collie, it's even more likely <laughs> than, um, say, some other breeds because they tend to look to the dogs that look like themselves or look like mom to tell them what to do or tell them how to act more than they want to look at you, honestly. And so um, that's, you know, definitely a concern. My bigger concern is her shouting at other dogs approaching her. So her dog-directed types of behaviors, that's where I would not have her and the puppy experience a new dog together ever. I mean, it would be like a very, very rare occurrence that I had done everything in my power to avoid if that happened. And if it did happen, your responsibility again is in telling the puppy that she's silly and she's wrong and that this new dog is wonderful. Um, and then be careful about your genetics because puppy culture is wonderful, but it's not everything, right? And so we want a dog that can bounce back really easily. We want to ask some really good questions um, of the dogs in the lineage to make sure that we are not, you know, introducing some of the same problems. And I, you know, wish I had a better answer for you, but basically puppies are very impressionable and we want to be very careful about the things that we expose them to. And that means big brother and big sister not exposing them to behaviors that we don't want to see continue as well. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.